0: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Today, we're going to be talking about the Lion Air 737 MAX accident that occurred about a year ago, October of 2018. We're coming into the one-year anniversary, so we have a special guest with us today.
1: Today, we have George Snyder, the president and CEO of GHS Aviation Group. George is a friend, And he's the former vice president for safety for USA Air, as well as the former vice president of safety and security for Korean Airlines. And George brings with him extensive experience in the Asia-Pacific environment. And his opinion will be very important to this discussion today.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you today.
0: We appreciate you being here. We have a lot to talk about, don't have a lot of time, so let's get right into it. Given the fact that you've got a lot of experience over in the Asia-Pacific region and Lion Air being one of those carriers that's in that region, after all of the, the, the stuff that has come out, all of the information since the accident, what is basically your general opinion about flying in Asia and, of course, the quality of training because that is one of many Uh, issues that's going to be brought up. We know that there's been a lot of maintenance issues that John and I are going to talk about with you in this discussion, but just a general uh, overall opinion about the operation itself.
2: Greg, that's a very good question. I think the entire industry globally has learned a lot from uh, the accidents in in both Indonesia and Ethiopia. I don't think the educational uh, focus has been only in Asia. I think it's been around the world. I think the manufacturers are now thinking differently about certification standards. I think they're thinking differently about the information that they provide to operators. I think the operators are are viewing this kind of interaction between manufacturers and themselves uh, in a little different light. And I think the training organizations of uh, various airlines around the world are are looking a little bit more carefully to make sure that we don't uh, leave anything out, that we don't take anything for granted, and that we give the line pilots all the tools that they need to go out and say, safely fly each and every day. So the educational uh, experience and the the value added from these two tragic accidents is, is equally applicable around the world.
0: One of the things that John and I talk about, especially with Lion Air, is the maintenance issues, because that seems to be what started the, the chain of events for this particular accident. Your experience being over at Korean Air, what was what was your overall opinion or at least an understanding of the quality of maintenance and, and the understanding by the maintenance techs when they were doing maintenance at that airline?
2: I think my particular experience uh, was very, very positive. Uh, the maintenance technicians, uh, basically called ground engineers as opposed to mechanics here in, in uh, North America, uh, very highly skilled individuals that were getting uh, the very best training from the L. OEM directly from the OEMs on uh, all aircraft types that they operated. They took their jobs very seriously, Greg. In fact, uh, our experience was that a uh, ground engineer, a mechanic, was actually assigned to one or two airplanes, and that was their airplane to ensure continued airworthiness of. Uh, they took great pride in doing that, uh, ensuring that the airplane uh, was was uh, at the highest level of airworthiness, that if there was a discrepancy from any of the flight crew that it was taken care that there was discussion between the uh, uh, PIC and the ground engineer until everybody was satisfied uh, that the airplane was ready to go so i had a very very positive experience all the way around in both korea and in the other areas that, that we've worked George, and in Korea airlines
1: that maintenance people were employees of korean airlines many of these carriers today the employees of repair stations so they're not direct employees of the airline and therefore that they would have a, a, a very large fleet of airplanes, maybe not by the same name on the tail. So that makes it very difficult to have ownership of the product. Have you seen any differences like that in Asia with the operators? Lion Air in particular, the the mechanics who worked on this airplane were not employees of Direct employees of Lion Air.
2: John, I don't uh, feel that, that that is a unique circumstance. Many airlines today are outsourcing, as, as you're very well aware, both their line maintenance and their heavy base maintenance uh, functions. It, in, in, in days gone by where the ground engineers were the employees, of the various airlines there was a tremendous amount of pride and i don't think a lot of that pride uh... has has necessarily dissipated but now with the airlines outsourcing uh, to, to various uh, uh, service organizations, and these service organizations in turn are not just servicing that airline, but airline C, D, E, and F. Uh, there's a, a, an even greater impetus on the airline himself, themselves to provide continuing oversight and surveillance to ensure that these external service providers are delivering the kind of, of work on their aircraft that meets the airline standards. So uh, it's it's not necessarily, while the service can be outsourced to these various service providers, the accountability and the responsibility remains solely with the operator.
0: And John, you know, you and I have had these discussions about Lion Air and some of the uh, the maintenance history and some of the stories that are coming out of this particular accident. What more have you seen with the maintenance aspects, especially with Lion Air, the oversight by the regulators and even of the carrier with regard to this airplane. Given the fact that this was a new airplane, they were already putting on an overhauled uh, angle of attack vein on the airplane. This was a brand new airplane. And now with that being one of the, the primary focuses of both Lion Air and the Ethiopian 737 MAX accident, what is it that we can expect or what should we expect? And what are the other issues with regard to the reliability of that single piece of equipment?
1: All right, so you raise an interesting point of just a single point with the uh, angle of attack transducer, which is what they call the device on the side of the nose of the airplane that gives us the angle of attack of the airplane relative to the wind. You know, when you buy parts, any bit down to a screw for an airplane, you are supposed to have a process in place to inspect that piece when it comes in, to verify that it is what you ordered and it is in a condition to use. And I can tell you... have having done receiving inspections multiple times, that very often we find pieces that come in that that are not in great condition and end up being returned. So it, it starts right on the receiving dock on looking and verifying the part that you've received, that it is airworthiness, has the correct birth certificate is what it's often called, which is the paperwork that says that it's a good part, where it came from, and has somebody's signature on it that verifies that that is a good part. So... That's step one. A used pot doesn't
0: necessarily mean it's a bad pot, but it means that you have to be paying attention to it. The big thing that I'm concerned with is that this was a relatively new airplane. If they had a problem, why didn't they go back to Boeing and ask them for another part rather than buying something that's, you know, off the market as a overhauled part? It's a brand new airplane. Isn't that covered under the warranty, if you will?
1: It should have been covered under the warranty. I don't know, understand why except for availability. Uh, You know, new parts are very, very expensive and used parts is very expensive. So then there's a big wide gap between a a new
0: part and a used part, both of which are expensive. One is very expensive. Well, I would think that that would be at least a focal point of this investigation is how this whole process worked, given the fact that we had an AOA attitude or AOA issue. And all of a sudden now they're buying overhauled parts for a brand new aircraft. Now, once they put it on, isn't there some calibration? Isn't there some maintenance uh, that has to go with bolting on that AOA vane rather than just stick it on and send the airplane off?
1: Uh, Yes, there is. And there is a very specialized tool that's required for them to have uh, to calibrate this unit after they put it on. Oftentimes it, it comes to you very much calibrated but you still have to verify, and it's a special tool you need to use. And uh, so one of the things that I will be looking for in this report that's, that's due out here pretty soon is to see if they had, in fact, that special tool in place to use it at that time on that airplane. I can tell you that it's not the type of tool that you keep in every location. So do they have it? Did they have it? Was it sent in? Those kinds of records should be reviewed by the action investigation team, and they should be part of the report.
0: George, one of the, uh, the, the other things that John and I have talked about, and I've brought this issue up for a very long time, and that is maintenance manuals and flight manuals for the aircraft from the manufacturer, regardless of the manufacturer, are produced in English, because that is the universal aviation language. And while we are supposed to have a level four proficiency in English, around the world. Is there really a level four comprehension of the English language? Are maintenance folks, are pilots really understanding when they read an English Uh, AFM or even a maintenance manual, do they really comprehend the English language and understand it? I think that's a big concern for the way they maintain airplanes, but I think Ethiopia, that's going to be a a pretty big issue is how much that pilot or crew really understood the new procedures that were written in English. How were they trained? Were they trained in English or trained in a native language? Did you see any of that when you were in
2: Korea? On the flight side, as well as the the maintenance side, Greg, Uh, we saw a high level of English comprehension. Now, I don't want to be uh, presumptuous in saying that that level of English comprehension went all the way down to uh, through the uh, ground engineer to the uh, technician level, which may, uh, these uh, ladies and gentlemen, are probably more proficient in their their native language, and there's no reason not to uh, accept that that's that's the case however when it came to an inspector level when it came to a tech uh, a uh, an actual ground engineer or a maintenance supervisor it's been my experience that there's a extremely high level of english proficiency simply because of the fact that these people had to have been trained by the OEM either in English or in French or in the native language of, of the, the manufacturer itself. So at that higher level, we never really saw a, a deficiency in English comprehension uh, and, and being able to communicate to the flight crews, to the OEM, to uh, other stakeholders in the English language. They they had a, a, an excellent understanding and as well as experience of how to perform these, these maintenance activities.
0: But you travel, you you do a lot of uh, safety evaluations evaluations at other airlines around the world currently? Have you seen that same level? And again, there's a big difference between proficiency and comprehension. That's I mean, correct. we talk about it That's as far correct. as pilot training, you know, That's you can correct. be proficient, but not current and vice versa and, and that kind of thing. So one of the things that, that, of course, John and I have have continually battled back and forth is, how much did these guys really understand? Why didn't they follow the procedures? Or if they did follow the procedures, was there an interpretation of those procedures that was technically either misinterpreted or they selectively filtered out to try and get this airplane back into service.
2: I can't speak to that. But even, even in North America, we know over the years that uh, even when, when English language is not an issue, uh, there has been a, in, in some circumstances that sometimes there's been a shortcutting of standard operating procedures uh, in the interest of time uh, where we would have a a normal maintenance task such as the changing of a tire uh, that uh, technicians have done many, many times over their 30-year career, and and why would you go all the way back into the line maintenance shack to get the task card, bring it all the way out to the airplane, and go step-by-step to do something that someone has done for 30 years? This is an absolute requirement. It's just like on the flight deck. No matter how many landings and takeoffs the flight crew does in a day or a week or a month or a year, there's a checklist on each and every time. It's not best two out of three. It's not a majority of the time. It's each and every time. So there is there is a strong requirement, regardless of language proficiency, to conform and comply with SOPs each and every time and shortcutting of that either for uh, on-time performance, uh, expediency. Uh, we don't have the part, or we don't have the part readily accessible, as well as any language implications. This is something that the investigation of both accidents are going to have to focus on.
0: John, you've been involved when we were with the, uh, the NTSB. You've seen these foreign accidents. You've you've been involved with the processes. What's your concern with uh, with not only Lion Air but some of the uh, the foreign? Operations and especially on the maintenance side, are they shortcutting? do they really understand? Um, do they like as george said they 've been doing it for thirty years, so you know they 're going more on rope memory than on a checklist or a work card Some of the issues that i 've seen
1: in the the foreign airlines and repair stations I visited is that we have a number of people that are well trained and Underneath them, there's a a group of people that are less trained, and they're actually the ones doing the work, and the well-trained person is is providing the supervision for that work. And, you know, today, cost containment is a big player in in what we do. And and I'm thinking of one airline in particular that we haven't mentioned here, that when I visited them, they had five technicians for each well-trained engineer that they had. And their goal was to try to get that to 10. And they raised it to seven, and they started to have problems. So the number of people that you can can uh, monitor in those kinds of situations gets to be a little bit tricky. Right, so that needs to be a focus of management, senior management, on what they do. Add to it that they, under the federal aviation rules, they're allowed to translate the maintenance manuals into the native language, and one of the things that's always been called into question is what falls off the table in the translation, yeah,
0: what's been lost in the translation, right. if you will.
1: Right, so that's always the issue. And of course, the FA doesn't have inspectors that are well versed in all of it, so you're rel- relying upon a lot of other people to tell you that what has been rewritten meets the intent of what the original was. So, that's another area of concern uh, that you have in the hangar that you don't necessarily have in the cockpit because they're not going to train. We're not going to have every single person that turns a wrench on an airplane, well-versed in English, well, well enough to read the manual completely.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that you and I both experienced and and the industry has experienced over the past probably 15, 20 years with outsourcing is the fact that a lot of these, uh, as we talked earlier, a lot of the aircraft go overseas for the heavy maintenance and that kind of stuff. And I recall a number of folks at Northwest Airlines who they they would send an airplane out and the airplane would come back in worse shape than when it went away because of these foreign um, maintenance facilities and the fact that there was a lack of oversight, there was a lack of you know, really good technical experience. And I think you know, that should be one of the aspects they'd be looking at with Lion Air, given the fact that it wasn't company employees, it was basically contract maintenance. I mean, are we gonna see a change based on what they may find in the Lion Air investigation? Could that have a worldwide effect?
1: Well, let's hope that they, they do a very thorough investigation and identify any of those deficiencies. But historically, even here in the United States, when we have identified problems with uh, outsourced facilities, uh, they get rather low priority from both the government and from the organizations, both the the outsource and the outsource e, uh, to fix those kinds of problems. The economics of it is such that it makes it very difficult. You know, you you bid for the work. So I'm I'm repair station A, and I bid against everyone else to do airline. B's work. And then the airplane comes in, and suddenly we find that we're behind the curve. We have more man hours in routine work than we expected, and those man hours are held against the original price. And then you have the question about uh, non-routines that are found, and the airline will... You know, oftentimes pushes back on the repair stations pretty hard on the non-routines and how much time they took to fix them. So the economic pressure on the repair station can be very, very high, and uh, that is a continuing problem. I don't know how we fix it, but uh, it is a concern. Now, I've seen some airlines do a better job than others. I actually traveled around uh, several locations around uh, the world with a quality team from one particular airline, and they they did an outstanding job. I was, fact, frankly, amazed at the job that they did on uh, interfacing with the inspection personnel. And oftentimes I saw, you know, several times, I saw the inspectors that made a significant find run to the airline person before they ran to their own management and tell them what they had found. And what that said to me was, their, manage- their own management may have wanted to mitigate or downplay what was found. So they were, they were concerned enough that they went directly to the customer and said, hey, come take a look at this.
0: George, you've been, you know, in, in all of your travels and, and the experience that you have overseas, not only with Korean Air, but all of the other airlines that you work with, what do you see from a maintenance Uh, operation standpoint, because when you do your safety evaluations, you look at the entire operation. What are some of the common denominators or some of the issues that really need to be focused on that could Possibly be facilitated out of the Lion Air accident as far as oversight, whether it's by the carrier or the regulator. What do you think the industry needs to be looking at right now, so that we don't have, you know, these maintenance issues? Because this isn't Lion Air is not the only accident or even serious event that's been related to maintenance, especially overseas. So, what in your experience have you seen as some of the common denominators?
2: Well, Greg, very accurately, you've already hit on several of them and in sort of a tiered priority. Number one, we look at the, uh, the competency of the Civil Aviation Authority itself. Is, is the Civil Aviation Authority, number one, uh, staffed adequately to provide the oversight and surveillance of the AMOs, the authorized, I'm sorry, approved maintenance organizations? the maintenance repair organizations that they they license, are there enough staff? I mean, is it physically possible? Is the staffing model such that adequate surveillance can be provided? Secondly, we look at the oversight uh, and surveillance capability of the AMO or the MRO itself. Can they police themselves? You know, an SMS is not just uh, the property of the airline. It's it's the property of the maintenance organization. as well. An SMS being
0: safety management. Safety system.
2: management system, yeah. And then thirdly, we look at the oversight and surveillance of the carrier. In other words, while the carrier may outsource the the uh, the production part of it, they can't outsource the accountability and they have a responsibility as an air operator certificate holder to provide that oversight and surveillance. And then we want to see, as John indicated, what's the result of that oversight and surveillance? Are Are these internal external audits consistently resulting in everything is fine, let's go to lunch? Or, are they resulting in some, some uh, very detailed deficiencies, non-compliances, and nonconformances being raised? And then uh, is there adequate follow-up to make sure that systemically these things don't occur again? So there's a lot of moving parts here, all of which have to be in place to ensure the level of continuing airworthiness that we like to see.
0: Well, we appreciate the fact that you joined us today. Um, it, it's great insight. We're going to have you back again because as Lion Air and Ethiopia and some of these other events take place, of course, we're going to want to get your expertise. John and I are going to continue to talk about Lion Air, especially when the report is finally issued. And I'm sure we will have another discussion both on the maintenance side and the ops side with Ethiopia as well. So we'd love to have you back. John and I are going to continue these discussions uh, for the podcast because there is so much information that hasn't really been developed, hasn't been put out in the press. And even the stuff that has been put in the press, not everybody gets an opportunity to read about it. So hopefully we can shed a little more light, provide a little more background with a lot of these issues, because I think these are going to be issues that continue to go forth as far as putting new technologically advanced aircraft into play in some of these carriers and especially some of these areas of the world that don't have the resources, don't have the capabilities that we see here in North America or Europe and that kind of stuff. So with that, John, what are your last parting words for the podcast?
1: Stay tuned. We will have more to say about Ethiopia and more to say about the facts around any and all of the issues that we take. You may have noticed in this podcast that we kept it factual, we kept it focused, we kept the information to be as accurate as we possibly can. And for that, uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for George for giving us his insight for, for the Asian Pacific region. And we're going to bring you back for Ethiopia and other things as well. Thank you, John.
0: And thank you, Greg. So on behalf of John Golia and myself, Greg Fife, fly safe.
2: To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.